Hi, this is Brent White. I preached the following message on March 25th, 2018 at Hampton United Methodist Church. This was Palm Sunday. The chief end of man, which is to say the reason we human beings exist, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and that's exactly right. It takes a certain kind of God-centeredness, as I say in this sermon on the raising of Lazarus, to appreciate the fact that Jesus was willing to disappoint Martha and Mary in such a profound way, at least at first. What can we learn from this scripture about our own disappointments with God? That's what the first part of this sermon is about, but but the second part of the sermon is even more important. What does the raising of Lazarus have to do with the cross, the atonement, and God's love for us? Today's scripture comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44, which I'll read now. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lift up, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Some of you probably know that I and my family are big fans of the sitcom The Office. We have watched that that entire series through probably five or six times now, and it just never seems to get old. (laughs) But even if you're not a fan of The Office the way I am, you've probably seen it before, many of you, and you know that one of the important characters on the show is a man named Dwight Schrute. Very eccentric man from a very traditional Pennsylvania Dutch family. And there is a particular episode during season nine in which his grandmother has passed away and they are having a funeral for her. They have some very um, interesting traditions and customs in their family, which they strictly religiously observe. And they have some interesting customs associated with burying a body. And in this particular episode, um, one of those customs, well, let me let Dwight Schrute describe this custom. He puts it like this. We Schrutes, we don't need some Harvard doctor to tell us who's alive and who's dead. But there was an unlucky streak of burying some heavy sleepers. And when grave robbers discovered some scratch marks on the inside of some of the coffins, we, we decided to make sure our dead are completely dead out of kindness. And then after they lower his grandmother's body down into the grave in the coffin, Dwight gets a shotgun and fires three shots into the coffin. Oh, okay. Well, you may laugh or maybe not, but... Before modern funeral practices around the turn of the 20th century, the fear of being buried alive was very real. And it happened sometimes, believe it or not. And it was such a a real fear that some people took precautions to make sure that they, they didn't get buried alive. For instance, sometimes strings were um uh, lower down were, were, were included inside a coffin and a person could pull the string and ring a bell um, above ground to alert family and friends that they are still alive. Very wealthy people, in some instances, even installed telephones inside mausoleums, you know, in case they woke up after they'd been buried there. I mention this because in verse 17, it says that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, there was an ancient Jewish superstition. It's not in the Bible, 
But many Jews in the first century believed that the soul hovered around the grave, hovered around the body for three days after the person died. And, you know, if the person came back to life within those three days, the soul would reunite with the body and all would be well. But after four days, there was no chance that that could ever happen. People believed that there was no hope that the person would come back to life. And this was likely true for Martha and Mary and their friends in today's scripture. By all means, Mary and Martha believed that if Jesus had had been there before their brother died, then of course Jesus could have healed him. Maybe they believed having heard about or seen Jesus raise other people back to life, that if Jesus had been there, you know, shortly after Lazarus died, he could have raised him back to life. But now that it's been four days, well, we can hardly blame these sisters for thinking that all hope was lost, no matter how much they believed in Jesus. But here's where Jesus, as he so often does, makes us feel uncomfortable. We learn in the first 16 verses of John chapter 11 that that Jesus's delay was deliberate. It was no accident. It was no oversight. In verse three, we learn that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus by messenger that his beloved friend Lazarus and they were Good friends, the three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were obviously very close to Jesus. And they sent word to Jesus that his friend was very sick. Now look with me at verse 4. Turn in your Bible, BYOB, to verse 4. And listen to what Jesus says. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, and that, that, little, that little word so is very important. John is saying, in other words, as a consequence of this love, When he heard that Lazarus was ill as a consequence of this love, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus delays coming for two days, thereby ensuring that by the time he got there with his disciples, Lazarus would have been dead for four days, thereby ensuring that his dear friends, Martha and Mary, would experience all the grief, all the anguish, all the sorrow, all the pain that comes from watching their dearest loved one die. Look at Martha's first words in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 32, we see Mary, her sister, respond to Jesus with those same words. Lord, if you had been here, Our brother would not have died. And then look further down to verse 35. This time it's the it's the the Judeans who have come to console the family. 
And they say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, which took place back in John chapter nine, could not he also have kept this man from dying? In other words, everyone is convinced that Jesus did something wrong in staying away in not being there for them, in letting his friend Lazarus die, in letting the family suffer like this. They are convinced that Jesus made a mistake. He failed. He let them down. His love for them failed. If Jesus really loved us the way that he says he does, then this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. But we, the readers, know that Jesus has already told us that this seemingly tragic event happened for a reason. Verse four, it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. That's the theme verse of this entire chapter. Everything that happens in John 11 is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If only, if only, if only we could make this the theme verse of our lives. Father, I am living for one thing and one thing only. I am living for your glory instead of my own. And I know that the greatest expression of that glory is the love that you showed us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So I am living so that your son may be glorified through me so that whatever happens to me, whether I live, whether I die, no matter what I'm going through, I know that I always have an opportunity to glorify you. And if I can glorify you, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. The Bible puts it like this. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Romans 14, 7 and 8. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever, Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Do you hear? Do you hear this kind of radical God centeredness in these verses? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. You are my portion. That is, you are my treasure. You are my inheritance. You're the only thing I want in the world, God. Everything I do, God, is for your glory. Everything that happens, I recognize, is for your glory. Whether it is the death of Lazarus, whether it is the grief and the anguish that Martha and Mary are experiencing... 
Whether it's the pain, the sorrow, the suffering, the grief that we ourselves experience, it's all for God's glory, which means that ultimately, listen to this, it means that ultimately it is for our deep happiness and joy. Because we are made to be happy as we experience the glory of God. Now, a couple of hundred years ago, churches taught their young people the Christian faith through something called catechism. Some churches still do. Phil's Lutheran Church, for instance, you you learn the catechism. It's a series of questions and answers that teach deep theological truths. John Wesley himself used the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He made a couple of modifications to it, but in general, he loved it and he taught it to his Methodist people. And the first question in the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words... Why are we here on planet Earth? Why do we exist? What is our purpose? Why did God make us? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I like this emphasis on enjoyment, on what makes us happy. God's glory makes us deeply happy. The way to be happy is to live our lives for his glory. The way to be happy is to experience his glory and to glorify him in everything. Consider today's scripture. When the sisters say, Lord, if you had only been here, Jesus could rightly respond, if I had been here, And I had done what you wanted me to do. And I had prevented Lazarus from dying. You would have missed out on a far greater blessing. And that blessing is nothing less than me. I want you to experience more of me. When I said that Lazarus's death was for my glory, I was really saying that his death was in order that you would have more of me. And isn't that what you want more than anything else? I know that's what you need more than anything else. You need more of me. And that's what I'm giving to you in spite of whatever temporary pain you're experiencing. I like the way one preacher puts it. He said this, we don't don't measure God's love for us Based on how much wealth, health, prosperity, comfort God gives us. If that were the case, then God must have hated the Apostle Paul. No. We measure God's love based on how much of himself he gives us. If it took their brother's death to give Mary and Martha more of God's glory, which is to say more of Jesus, then that's exactly what God will give them. And we can apply that to our own lives. If it takes this temporary pain and suffering to give us more of Jesus, that's exactly what God will give us as well. Think of it like this. For non-believers... This world is all the heaven 
they will ever experience. But for those of us who believe in Christ, this world is all the hell that we will ever experience. Does that put things in perspective a little bit? Um, And you may object and you may say, yes, but, you know, in order for Martha and Mary to have this great experience of Jesus's presence and glory and all that, Lazarus had to die. That doesn't seem fair. What about poor Lazarus? Well, what about poor Lazarus? I, I wouldn't say he was very poor because what happens when he dies? What happened to him when he died? He experienced more of Jesus, more than we can even imagine. So there's no, there's no poor Lazarus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life and that people who believe in me do, will not die. And, you know, what he means, of course, is not that we don't cease to, you know, to have life and breath in our bodies. Of course, that happens. But the moment that transition takes place, guess what? We have more of him, more of life, more of Jesus. We have everything that we most desire, whether we know it or not. We get it all, even When we die. So there's no poor Lazarus. I confess that I didn't always see things like this. Even long after I became a pastor. And I'm thinking of an experience. I'll disguise. I didn't disguise his name at nine. Because nobody there knew him. But well I'm recording this. And if it makes it on the internet. He might hear it. So I'm going to call this man. um, Gary. Gary, <laughs> um, not Gary, not Gary Chitwood. Maybe I should change the name, but anyway, um, I'm, I'm calling him Gary. I don't mean Gary Chitwood. This was seven or eight years ago. Um, I was a, an associate pastor at Alpharetta first. And this, this man, Gary was about my age and he had kids about that same age as my own kids. He was a lot like me, you know, and he was a husband and a father and, um, he had a heart attack which was kind of shocking to me. People my age aren't supposed to have heart attacks. People, again, seven or eight years ago, I was even younger, right? Um, my friends are not supposed to have heart attacks, but Gary survived, and I went to visit him on a Sunday afternoon at Emory Johns Creek Hospital, And I guess that he saw, he read the expression on my face, he read my body language, something about the way I was carrying myself in that hospital room communicated a sense of shock uh, or alarm or, or something negative, which he picked up on. And I'll never forget, he looked up at me from the hospital bed and said, Brent, I'm okay, man. If I live or die, it's all good. God's got this. God is taking care of me. This is all for the best. This is all for his glory. And when he said that, there was something in my heart that was resisting his words. No way, I thought. Why? Because I know what's best, not God. And I know that if I'm suffering, it's not right. If only you had been here, Lord, if only you had loved me enough to do what I think that you ought to do for me. That was my attitude. 
Now I see that even the way Gary responded to his heart attack glorified God because he was showing me and he was showing doctors and nurses and friends and family, whoever visited him. He was showing us what trusting Jesus looks like. He was showing us what it looks like to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. So he was right. This was definitely for God's glory because he was glorifying God. And he's alive and well today. He's lost some weight. He's changed his diet. He's taking better care of himself. He should be here for many years longer, taking care of his family, loving his family, continuing to bear witness to the love of Christ. And and that itself will will bring glory to God through his Christ-like example. Now, question. Do you remember where else in the Gospels we learned something about good old Mary and Martha? This is not their first appearance in the Gospels. Sorry? When Jesus was at their house back in Luke chapter 10. And remember, remember that um, they were hosting Jesus and his disciples. There was a lot of work to be done around the house, as there always is when you're entertaining guests. Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet alongside the other disciples, listening intently to Jesus, teaching and preaching. And Martha is angry, (laughs) angry at her sister and probably a little angry at Jesus, too, because Jesus just doesn't seem to mind that Mary is sitting there being lazy, listening to him when she ought to be in the kitchen working. That's probably Martha's attitude. I think we can probably relate to Martha. I suspect that many of us have a similar personality type. There's work to be done and uh, we don't we don't tolerate laziness, you know. And uh, so Martha was. But then what does Jesus say about Mary? She you know, because because Martha's like Jesus, (laughs) tell my sister to come in here and help me, (laughs) you know, Um, something like that. And uh, and of course, Jesus says. Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing here. I'm not going to tell her to get up and help you. So, I mean, if you're if if you're keeping score in the sibling rivalry, well, um, Mary gets a point. (laughs) But but in today's scripture, if you're keeping score, I think that you ought to award Martha the point, not Mary While both sisters expressed disappointment that Jesus wasn't there for their brother's death, Martha goes on to say something more. Look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But even now, I love that. Listen, when we experience disappointment in life, when we experience even disappointment with God, when life doesn't go the way we think it ought to, when our prayers don't get answered the way we think they ought to, when God doesn't give us what we ask for, we should, like Martha, be able to say, but even now. There's always a reason to say, but 
even now. Lord, why did you let my marriage fail? But even now. Lord, why, why didn't you let me get into that college that I applied to? You know, the one with that special program I was trying to get into. I've been working so hard. But even now. Lord, why did you let me get this illness? But even now. Lord, why did you let me lose this job But even now, Lord, why didn't you let this relationship work out? I mean, I really thought she was the one. But even now, Lord, why did you let this happen to my child? But even now, with God, there's always an even now. And and it's not... Necessarily what we hoped for or expected. But that's probably because it's better than we expected or hoped for. This was true for Martha. And you might say, well, now hold on, Brent. Didn't Jesus give Martha exactly what she wanted, what she asked for, what she expected? Well, I would say not even close. And now it's true that, uh, of course, Jesus, you know, does raise her brother back to life. She first had to suffer and grieve and experience disappointment. And she wasn't expecting Jesus to let that happen. But no, I would say that Martha got actually much more, infinitely more than she expected. Why do I say that? I want to show you something that I think is really cool in um, the Bible today. Maybe you've never seen this before. I guess I'd never really thought about it before until this past week of reading and studying this scripture. So I want to share it with you. But first, let's look at verse 36. Now, verse 35 is the most one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Um, It's the shortest verse in the Bible. What is verse 35? Jesus wept. That's right. Now look at the verse after that. Verse 36. We're told that the visiting Judeans who were there to console the family, they say, see how Jesus loved him. That is Lazarus. In other words, they believed that Jesus's tears proved how much Jesus loved him. But oh, no. Not even close. And you say, well, I mean, sure, because what really proves how much Jesus loves his friend Lazarus is the fact that in a few moments he was going to go to the tomb and, and call Lazarus to, to come out. And, and that 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 miracle itself is what is what proves how much Jesus loved his friend. Nah, that doesn't prove it. No one imagines, after all, that it's very difficult for God in the flesh to perform any kind of miracle. It didn't take an unusual amount of exertion on Jesus's part to bring Lazarus back to life. A miracle like that is not hard to pull off. No, I'm going to I'm going to show you um, what really proves Jesus's love for Lazarus. 
Take your Bibles and look with me at the scripture immediately following today's passage. (laughs) The heading in my Bible is ominously titled, um, The Plot to Kill Jesus, which gives you an idea of where this is going. Now, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, in verse 45, It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, look at verse 48. Um, Their concern. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And get this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, as traditionally understood, is mostly is first and foremost a military leader who will come and conquer God's enemies and set up God's kingdom on earth. And if everybody starts following Jesus, even if he's not the Messiah, I'm just speaking from their point of view, it's going to look really bad for us. The Romans are going to be very nervous. The Romans do not tolerate sedition. The Romans do not tolerate people who call themselves king and act like kings. The Romans do not tolerate a large crowd of people following someone who calls himself king. And they're going to come here and they're going to destroy our temple. They're going to destroy our way of life. They're going to run us out of town if they don't kill us. We will be in trouble. The Romans do not want a revolution. And they are very skillful at violently stamping out revolutions. We don't want that to happen. And so the high priest Caiaphas, with great wisdom in uh, verse 49, says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, these words are just dripping with irony because Caiaphas, who doesn't believe in Jesus after all, but Caiaphas is speaking the truth, but he's speaking more truth than he can imagine. But not more than the than the Apostle John, who wrote the gospel, can imagine, because he interprets or he says what's really going on. And he says the high priest is prophesying that Jesus would die. Look at verse 51, 52, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Those children of God are us. Jesus, in other words, would die a substitutionary death on the cross so that all the children of God scattered all around the world would find forgiveness of sin, eternal life. It's not simply better that one man should die. It's the greatest news in the world that God's son Jesus would die because only through his death Can we be saved? Regardless, the raising of Lazarus was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the event that sets into motion the chain of events that would lead to Golgotha, that would lead to the cross, that would lead to Jesus's crucifixion. And Jesus knew this. 
So, weeping for his friend, performing a miracle in and of itself, those things don't prove Jesus' love, not even close. What proves Jesus' love for Lazarus and for every sinner who's ever lived is that Jesus performed this miracle in part to set in motion the chain of events that would lead to his death on the cross. Do you see that? Jesus knew that in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, he was basically signing his own death warrant. He knew that in order to rescue Lazarus from the tomb, he was essentially making an appointment for himself to, 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 to take Lazarus's place in that tomb. Martha didn't know any of that when she said, but even now. She thought she was just asking Jesus to do her a favor, to perform a miracle for a friend so that, so that Lazarus could live another 20 or 30 years in this world only to die again. Big deal. She didn't know that by bringing her brother back, Jesus was making it possible ultimately for Lazarus, for Martha, for Mary, and for everyone else who believes in Jesus to live not just for a certain number of decades in this fallen, sinful world, but to live forever in heaven, to live forever in God's redeemed and perfect world. Look how he loved him, the onlookers said. And it's as if it's as if Jesus were saying in return, you think this is love? Let me show you what love looks like next week on the cross. Almighty God. We are challenged and inspired by this example of love. We are Saddened in part to think that because of our own sin for which we are fully responsible, you had to send your son to suffer and die on a cross. But we are more than anything grateful because we, we see so clearly your great love for us. Let this message of love penetrate our hearts in this week ahead and for the rest of our lives. Show us that if your word is true, and of course it is, but show us that, that if it's true, if everything that's described here in your, in your word is true, and, and I have represented it fairly in this sermon, if that's true, then our lives can never be the same. Show us that and give us hope that no matter what we're experiencing in our personal lives, in the life of this church, that there is always, always reason to hope in you, to trust in you, to believe in you. There's always a, but even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I want you to know that you are welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. 
We have two worship services each Sunday, one at nine and one at eleven. The nine o'clock service is、uh, acoustic contemporary, and the eleven is more traditional. Hope to see you there. Thank、you